The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. They've opened now these detention centres for the immigrant children who are separated from their families um, while they're trying to renegotiate where they're going to go. And Mm. in these detention centres, the children aren't allowed any physical contact with each other. So they're imposing these prison Mm. rules on children from the age of kind of 11 Mm. up to 17. Today I'm talking to Seanine Lam, who is, well, various things and wears various hats. Seanine's got a great story of such a diverse range of experiences from death row in the South US, right the way through to her incredible social and legal reform work, which is now doing particularly around young people. She is genuinely inspirational. I think sometimes it's just reassuring to know that there are lawyers particularly out there who aren't doing this for the money they're not doing it for the glory they're there to push people forward to make the changes and to do the things that probably most of us set out to achieve when we start off on this route uh, but sometimes get lost along the way the hearing Seanine, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and I've done some research, as I usually do for, for uh, these guests, um, but I'm struggling to really put you into any category uh, in particular. How would you describe yourself uh, to anyone? Uh, it slightly depends who I'm talking to, but I think fundamentally I'm a lawyer. And obviously that... Sufficiently broad. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that doesn't mean much. Apparently that just means you've passed your... Uh, LPC or BVC? Uh, I think it can mean even, uh, well, anything, uh, to be honest. But uh, but that's good, that's good. It keeps you grounded, yeah. I think. As, uh, but, but you're a qualified barrister. I am, yes. And how, uh, take me way back. Uh, not way back, that sounds way, like way already. Way back, um, <laughs> the olden days. Take me, take me a short while back uh, <laughs> to, to how that came about. What was, uh, do you have family in law? Do you... No, not at all. I, am, I left university and was a bit lost as to what to do. And I kind of, I think I had the idea that I wanted to go into... TV to help people or documentaries and and that kind of thing, but didn't really know how to get into it. And Mm. then um, as a temporary job, uh, became a solicitor's clerk, attending court. So whereabouts was that? In in South London. And and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed being with the client. I really enjoyed assisting the barrister where I could. I enjoyed the the narratives, the stories of people's lives. And um, that was kind of the draw for me into law. So how long are you doing that for? That was after university? After university for about a year. And then I started the the GDL yeah. conversion to law about the September afterwards. And then the bar vocational course the year after that. Just my own curiosity, what were you studying at university? I did comparative religion and philosophy. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and do you still get some use out of that in your yeah, work now? The, um, well, I think the comparative religion was fascinating. You know, looking. I did my dissertation on um, how different Christian denominations coped with AIDS, um, and so oh. it was it was early nineties, mid nineties, and so there was a really raw. wide range of re- reactions to mm. it. Um, and I was some of my research was with a Catholic priest who was out in the housing states in Edinburgh, where there was lots of AIDS being spread through. Um, drug use and uh, then young women sleeping with men who are HIV positive so he was encouraging the use of condoms as a prevention of the spread of AIDS but obviously yeah that was against Catholic Church's policy on uh, contraception and so he'd then been hauled to the Vatican uh, and taken out of service so it was really fascinating time and and in fact when I moved down to London I started working at the lighthouse I don't know if you Mm. remember which is such a fantastic Mm 
organization and and one of the first kind of training programs that I went on was at the lighthouse on how to be a how to befriend uh, someone with HIV and AIDS but at the time they had a residential unit in the lighthouse and it was it was quite controversial it was kind of a hospice care mm. uh, but it had been built by people's friends yeah. and often families um, would want to come in but but people were estranged from their families at the time yeah. so it was it felt like a kind of cutting edge time to be involved in that so do you think that formed some sort of uh, sort of hub of uh, this idea the seed of uh, fairness or justice or yeah, I think it was really f- fascinating. I think it's often hard for us to remember that arc of um, the way people with HIV and AIDS were uh, treated in society. Mm. And for me, that's really the motivator, is the arc of, mm. of how the story changes. So if, if you remember in the kind of late 80s and the early 90s, people were literally, um, like bus drivers were wearing face masks um, because they were worried about being transmission through yeah. saliva um, wow and when Princess Diana there was a shot of Princess mm. Diana holding someone's hand who had AIDS and that was yeah. a kind of first breakdown in the, in this uh, actually we can continue to treat people like humans mm. but if you look now and obviously um Actually, the National AIDS Trust is still doing really fantastic strategic litigation Mm -hmm. around the access to PrEP and various medication. But obviously, AIDS is not necessarily a terminal disease Mm -hmm. in the way that it was at that time. Absolutely. And and so uh, the narrative around it is so much more sympathetic. Mm. And I think that's really an important, that was an important learning curve for me. Mm. I can can see it knowing what's to come. uh, I can see how that would be. And... Uh, so, so the, the BBC is done, and you are still in South London, I'm guessing, or around that. Yeah. Um, uh, what, what next? So, just before I went to bar school, so between GDL and going to bar school, I had been watching the TV, as a lot of students do, and um, there was a British man who was due to be executed in Georgia, um, and his lawyer was on the news. Georgia in the US. In the US, okay. yeah. And his lawyer was on the news and it was a British lawyer by the name of Clive Stafford Smith. And I I watched the news again and he got a stay of execution. And and suddenly that story really interested me and I carried on watching and then 24 Mm. hours later, um, he was executed. And I remember thinking like the arbitrariness of the state being able to to give and take life in that way, like to give someone a 24 hour reprieve and Mm. then just take it away. Um, You know, it's really kind of playing God, isn't it? With Mm. someone's life. But I wrote to Clive's office and, or faxed them, I think it was, and said, (laughs) can I come and intern um, here for the summer? And, and that was in the UK, or was that over in they, the US? They were in the States. Oh, wow. So a fax them from London. And mm. uh, didn't get a reply. Obviously, they were busy saving people's lives. And then <laughs> eventually phoned up and said, did anyone see my CV? <laughs> and uh, I got the office manager. Um, and he was like, oh, here it is on the top of a filing cabinet. Sure, <laughs> you want to come? Sure. T- you know, turn up and whenever you want. And wow. um, so I spent the summer between bar school um, and the GDL in Louisiana in the US mm. working on death penalty cases, um, which was a, a fundamentally life changing experience for me. And, and what do you, I suppose, what, what sticks in your memory? I suppose there are so many stories, even mm. from such a short, relatively short period of time, but what, what, what sticks out now? From that first yeah. time in New Orleans. Um, it was obviously I was very young. Mm. 
And there was a kind of pervasive narrative of New Orleans being a dangerous place. And you were there on your own as well? Yeah, there were other interns, yeah, yes, but they yeah, were yeah, all but you travelled there. Yeah, yeah. travelled there, and it was in an apartment in the French Quarter. And, you know, there were certain areas that we weren't supposed to go in. But then spending my day-to-day in the courthouse um, and with the families of these kind of hmm. supposedly extremely dangerous people hmm. and going to death row for the first time and, and meeting someone who's, you know... Um, to all intents and purposes, the worst of the worst in yeah. society. Well, demonized, uh, yeah. I suppose, in many ways. And, and, then, and then making friends with uh, people who were on death row. So mm-hmm. it was game-changing for me because it, it humanized everything and made me realize how narratives can be really pernicious in mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, one of my first experiences, um, particularly around criminal law, was going to uh, the prison in Hull, right. uh, which is... A very old-fashioned Victorian, mm. really quite imposing building, mm. and, uh, and and just doing some work experience and being left in a cell with mm. somebody who you, I didn't really know what we were there for at the time. Um, and you come out and find out well they're a rapist and they, they've mm. beaten people up and they've done this and that, and absolutely fine, uh, like just very so it's inverted commas normal mm. um, and, and very human. Yeah. And uh, had I known that, bef- I don't know what he was there for, what we were there for at the time, then maybe I would have. Sort of approached it in a very different way but you obviously you knew what people yeah. were well the, the fact that they were on death row to start yeah. with is we're not talking about some sort of petty theft no. um these are significant issues and although there were a significant number of innocent um people that we worked with who were on death row and and in many cases we were just trying to get the death sentence overturned and they would end up with a life imprisonment. Mm. So there was a whole range of uh, things. But, you know, the amazing thing about it is is um, now, 20 years later, and I still mm. have received letters from those guys. I got one last week from one of the guys who was on Incredible. death row is now doing life sentence. And I feel like it's such a... Um, you know, those are people that I've known now for 20 years. And I guess some of the things I read um, that you've talked about before, uh, you say that sometimes the, the the life sentence itself is sometimes taken as being worse than death. Yeah. Uh, so the fact that people are writing to you, how are they, what are they saying? Are they, it, is it gratitude uh, sometimes or is it is it not? Well, I think there's a, a range of reactions mm. and people go on a journey of, um, you know, you hope for them that they come to some kind of peace mm. with what their life is, mm. because otherwise it's incredibly frustrating. Um, and and I'm not sure I would get to that place. Yeah. Um, I think I would probably always live with the frustration and the anger. Mm. Um, and, and it's different personalities. But some people have a, a much more fulfilling life uh the the man who wrote to me last week has become a a minister an ordained minister so he um delivers church services within there and he's Mm. also become a leather work um expert so he's so um, it's finding another sense of purpose i guess yeah and and occupation um, and realizing that it is a society in and of itself yeah although you've got no freedom you are still inhabiting it Mm. Um, on death row it's very different because you're in uh, individual cells and so you have no human contact um they're 23 hours a day in their Mm. cell and and you know they get half an hour out on the tier and you don't have any contact with any other human Mm. it's i think for someone like me and and probably well the majority of people in the world it's very difficult thing to picture 
Um, we see things like the Green Mile, um, yeah. a very sort of Hollywood glamorized version, I'm sure. And and out of that, sort of, if you were to explain or describe that picture that you have when thinking about it, what 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 do you see? Do you only see that one hour a day that that you spent with people, or do you see the sort of the, the effect of that 23 hours of being often in solitary confinement or just in a cell? Well, I think the benefit that I saw of me being there for that hour a day was that it allowed people mm. an opportunity to become human, mm. perhaps again, mm. or, you know, that that you could buy maybe a snack or a, a drink mm. or and, and talk. Mm. Um, but for me, the pervasive memory of Angola, which is uh, the state penitentiary in Louisiana, right. and it's called Angola because it was a plantation and the slaves came from Angola. Oh, and it is still a plantation today. So it's 3,000 acres of land and there mm. are uh, black men in a gang tolling the field with a white man mm. in uniform on a horse with a gun dancing you know no. dancing in between them yeah. and, and you can't fail <laughs> to see the parallels mm. between that and and slavery over hundreds of years yeah. it's just not changed and, and and the the warden had his own runway in the um plantation so in the middle of these you'd have these fields and the guys singing their songs and toiling the ground and then the warden coming in in his plane uh landing down there and then flying out i mean it was it was a remarkable Mm. uh place and obviously most people don't get the opportunity to see that but i read and this is even more shocking to me last week that um They've opened now these detention centres for the for the immigrant children yeah, yeah. who are separated from their families yeah. um, while they're trying to renegotiate where they're going to go. And mm. in these detention centres, the children aren't allowed any physical contact with each other. So they're imposing these prison mm. rules on children from the age of kind of 11 mm. up to 17. Well, in some ways that brings us um, up a, a few years on from, yeah. from your... Uh, but so just to just to finish that bit, you went back to death row yeah. to work with Clive. Clive, yeah. Uh, so, how long were you there for altogether? Uh, so I was... It, I went a few times in the summers between law school and then... Um, I went back there to work for six months and then I came back to the UK uh, to help Clive set up Reprieve here and then I went back for kind of three or four years and qualified as Mm. a lawyer there. So it was, uh, that was, yeah, it was a fundamental experience for me. And a a significant part of your life as well to to commit to to helping those people and and in some ways it seems quite so strange to go to a different country to do that. You know, I'd really been looking for a legal mentor here in the UK and I'd struggled to find uh, exactly where I fitted. I really enjoyed doing the work at the bar but I didn't Mm. necessarily like the distance from the clients Mm. in that situation and what Clive gave me was um, an opportunity to be the kind of lawyer that uh, better than the kind of lawyer I could envisage myself as being. Yeah. And what sort of work were you doing in the UK uh, at the bar? I was doing was criminal, criminal defence, yeah. And I was doing also some, um, I got involved in some Caribbean death penalty cases, so okay. some privy council work. Yeah. I spent, one summer I spent in Belize in Central America on uh, death row there, <laughs> and that was extraordinary. And the contrast actually between America and uh, and death row in Belize was really bizarre. In, in, in what way? So they would, the prisoners there were just kept in these kind of, 
like chicken wire oh. uh, cages with outside so that whole elements exposed to the whole elements and they were overlooking um, where the gallows were so effectively oh, their wow. view was where their hanging point would be but that you know the treatment and level of security was shocking there one of the inmates had been shot by one of the guards and they hadn't provided him with any medical attention so we had had to bring in a doctor to see he was wearing this big patch across his belly where the gunshot wound was um and no access to food we brought them in calagas stoves Mm. and rice and things like that just inhumane yeah um, like animals, well, worse than animals. Yeah. Um, wow, it just, just, it's just, it's so hard to believe. Yeah. Um, and we're not talking about it very long ago, and I'm no, sure it's no. probably not changed a great deal either. No. Um, so, so as I said, bringing us up slightly more to date, uh, the uh, reprieve kind of came first. And yeah. what was your t- talk a little bit about reprieve and your involvement with that? So I think Clive, um, you know, was busy doing all this representation in the states, and was also conscious that there was in the UK a kind of support and understanding for the work that he was doing that probably didn't exist so much in the southern United States Mm. and it was how could we harness that from um, lawyers coming out to intern or to work there to resources a lot of corporate law firms got Mm. involved in supporting that and MPs would get involved a lot in uh, death penalty cases especially if there was someone who had a British national Mm. you know nationality Mm. Um, and so he thought it would be a good idea to set something up in the UK I suppose using his networks and everything like Mm. that so uh, I came back for six months when I was working there and helped set it up Mm. and and became one of the first trustees um, and was a trustee in fact until I think 2006 when I set up Just For Kids Law so let's move straight on Uh, (laughs) Just For Kids Law so there was was a lot of work obviously going on in between and and you were clearly incredibly busy um, with Reprieve and with with the work here and in in, in Louisiana and and elsewhere but um, we're talking now about things particularly as a trustee and working and engaging with politicians um, Mm. no doubt the press involved as well you see you, you're doing more than just being a going back to your original mm. quote a lawyer mm. um, this is way beyond being a lawyer mm. for most people mm. um, what were what elements of all of that experience came into forming Just For Kids Law mm. well uh, my experience in the States was really f- formative in that way because um, although there there's a much greater sense of injustice and it's proportionately affects many more people um, and there's no welfare state Mm. there is out of that uh, innovation and it it felt much the legal world felt much less innovative here because of legal aid and um, there wasn't the same pressing need and um, what I had seen in the States was, you know, juvenile justice was recognized as an area of specialism. And mm. uh, what was happening to kids was really troubling a lot of, of American people. And re- here in the UK, it was it was a part of criminal justice, but it was definitely not mm. a separate part. And, mm. I, and, I, and I found that very difficult because obviously it's different courts, different system. And, yeah. and many of the kids were the same kinds of kids that I would have seen in America. So they may not have ended up on death row. So mm. when I first started working in the States, they still executed children, 16 to 18 year olds. And oh. I worked on a case, a number of uh, juvenile death penalty cases. So the, the kids were very similar. Mm. And what was happening was quite similar. And 
I wanted to cr- create an environment like that that could really help the kids. Mm. Um, I f- felt that that going to court or being involved in the criminal justice system was mm. often a trigger point mm. that you could access. It, it might be the first time the state was aware that they were in difficulty or their family mm. or, or, or even just being in a police station for the first time was a yeah. scary experience for them. And how could you really harness that and convert it rather than just process them through? Mm. And and so so yeah, you along with your I could, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I want to know a little bit more yeah, about yeah. this. Are you sat around in the pub? Are you having a no, chat? So, so, I how, just how met Ica. It's really if, interesting. So I, when I came back to the UK and I decided I wanted to practice back here, I went to a firm and said, "Listen, I want to be an in-house barrister, but I want to specialise in youth justice. I want to make it a specialism." And the firm were like, "Well, you can try, but I don't know if we'll be able to. Mm. You'll have sufficient clients." But as it turned out you know very quickly it developed mm. into uh, we, we happened to be in an area where there were lots of problems at the time and, and this was coming through criminal legal aid referrals yeah. or, or funding I presume as well yeah and also it was just around about the time of kind of Tony Blair's um, anti-social behaviour orders yeah. and, and creating yeah. yeah the youth justice boards and, and so loads okay. of kids were drawn into the net because lots of uh, welfare state resources were put into the mm. youth offending teams so I mean even his own kid and Jack Straw's kids got dragged into the yeah. criminal justice system so the net was really widened and um, there would be these youth offending teams down at court and I remember arguing for one of my clients that they had serious mental health problems Mm. Um, and he hadn't always had but something had clearly happened while he'd been detained and that he needed to be put in a protective environment rather than a prison environment Mm. and the manager of the youth offending team uh, thought this kid was trouble and didn't want to move him out of the prison setting and I was like you can see his mental health deteriorated he needs support at this stage and there was a youth fending team worker who uh, challenged her manager and took my sides in the argument okay. and I was like she was wow. popular <laughs> <laughs> that, well, that, but that was Ica Ah. So afterwards, I had a conversation with her, and I was like, "You just because I saw her on her the courtroom steps with her manager mm. go, talking, and I could see she was going." Come mm. on. And my client ended up getting the support he needed, and um, so I started talking to her and realised she had uh, a law degree, but had never qualified and had wanted to do youth justice work but didn't know how to do it um so that was the beginning i was like that's what i want to do that was the beginning of our so very much a chance in in kind of in a way a chance meeting yeah um and actually on the opposite side of things um and so that was in 2006 yeah we said we met well, we probably met in 2004 Mm. and then just for kids started in 2000 and how do you go about how do you go about setting something up like that? Because it's coming out of the blue, out of nowhere. Is it it's sort of dragging everybody you know into it to mm, get involved? And Definitely. We wrote a business plan. Um, we uh, didn't know what that meant. <laughs> uh, we presented it to people. And then... Um, we were really lucky to get seed funding of mm. fifteen thousand um, pounds mm. from um, Martha Lane Fox, who became oh, our patron. Yes, um, and uh, that allowed us to go. We were there, so then we went to the states for a week and looked at models of innovation in yeah. New York and New Orleans. Okay, and then sat in a room for two days and were like this is what we were going to do and mm. within that time we came up with this idea of this holistic representation mm. um, 
so providing a child with a lawyer and an advocate so the advocate would look at all of the problems in their life okay. and go how can I fix those so their job was a lot of negotiating with social services mm. or school we found mm. that 85% of the kids we were working with were out of mainstream education yeah so, so it was again back to back to where we started. But you're taking it away from it's not just about the law; it's yeah. about the whole sort of socio-economic uh, sort of background. It's about helping them with what they need help with, yeah. rather than just this one, perhaps quite narrow or, or not necessarily insignificant, but but um, minor part of their lives. The, the, the immediate response the urgency I guess as well is quite important and the court case may not be the dominant thing in their life no. there are maybe no. other elements that True. are falling apart you know a lot of them would be falling out with their parents mm. or um, you know maybe in their first relationship and that was mm. going well or wasn't going well and all of those things were dominating their lives and the, and the court was really just background noise yeah. and so it was yeah. realising what the priority was for them and trying to get them to understand the seriousness of the significance of the court case but also contextualizing it with the other things that were going on in their lives mm. so when you were sat down um you have your blank sheet of paper um what, what were the things that you remember being on it what was what were your objectives what were you setting out to achieve from that day so that one? kids could reach their potential so that was that was that was it underlying everything else. Yeah. And people would say to us, "It should be about preventing offending," and we <laughs> were like, "No, that's not our our mission. Is to enable every child to be able to reach their potential, and that's mm. their choice. That what their potential is." And so, what was a, so the development and evolution of it came. Then we set had set up um, a strand which was called our youth ambassadors and those were all the young people who became the kind of voice mm. and and they were a collective voice and they would do we would do activities and organizing and various things with them and they became a driving force so they became one of the subcommittees of the board um pretty early on so we were listening to the voice of the young people so not just talking at them telling them yeah. what they need and what they want you were listening and and and, yeah. uh, and i i think that, that you refer to them also again again as uh, young activists yeah and that's that's what you're nurturing yeah. this um uh, activists for change uh, but to help themselves and helping other people to help them as well um so how how did that develop from the two of you to well you've got how many employees now it was, or, i think there's four or, I employees but also yeah. involved around yeah. and around but i think just for kids probably has about 40 staff now yeah. and offices um in three to four different locations yeah. in in london um uh, but you know we built different bits as we went along yeah. so it was an evolving thing um so you know from this direct service mm. we started to see where the state was failing children across the board and that was the development of the strategic litigation and how open the were they well I, I think you've already answered the question how open were they to to being um shown where they were failing children no we were always we were ending up in um the high court a lot you know all the way up to the supreme court but i mean this happens in every aspect of mm. law that that and the state will sometimes fail to provide what mm. someone is entitled to mm. until their hand is forced yeah uh so you would force the hand of the state on an individual level but how could you show that this was a pattern mm. of um behavior by the state mm. rather than just a one-off instant and that's really hard it is and uh, one of the 
Um, one of the examples I'm going to talk about now, and I might say it wrong, but I'm going to say Tigere. Tigere. thank yeah. you. Um, but that's one of the ways that you did manage to show yeah. that this isn't just an issue for one person. Yeah. Just tell us a little bit about how that came about and what happened. So Tigere was a case in the Supreme Court that had been taken by a different firm of solicitors on behalf of this young woman, Boerish mm. Tigere, who um, the government had changed the regulations in 2012 as part of Theresa May's hostile environment mm. so that um, students who were or kids who graduated from school had left school with their A-levels and had places at university but didn't have citizenship were no longer going to be entitled to get a student loan or domestic fees so they had been entitled mm. to it all the way up until 2011 in 2012 the new regulations come in and, th and that cut off a whole load of kids including ones who had leave to remain in mm. the country they were going to be here mm. forever and they'd won these places at university through all their hard work mm. so then just to cut them off at that point seemed ridiculous and, yeah. and it was it's only a, a loan <laughs> everyone repays it <laughs> and it's a loan of nine thousand pounds a year but the yeah. significance of not having the loan means that the university would charge you international fees yeah. which can be three times the, the rate so it, it was literally preventing people from going to university and fulfilling and, their potential and fulfilling what you their potential about. and we even so we intervened in the case we'd seen the impact that this had been having on young people who were coming to us saying can you help us get to uni and we've been trying to help them on an individual level getting scholarships but it was well how can we show that this is happening across the board and mm. um, so we heard about the case and then we applied to intervene and the young people presented i think it was 40 cases to the supreme court of of children who'd worked really really hard got these extraordinary places at university uh but because they didn't have citizenship they were unable to um take up those places and mm. uh then what was amazing about it, so we we managed to get one of the government's own economists to say this was there was this was a financial there was no financial benefit to this because mm. When you look at what graduates pay into the tax pot, percentage-wise, yeah. yeah. it's much higher than people without a graduate. So everything was just about a hostile environment. There wasn't even an economic argument for mm. it. Um, and, but what was amazing for us was the mobilization of the young people around this case. So they could see how there was potential for them to change the law mm. to the benefit, not just of themselves, but mm. of this broader group. Mm. And so Just For Kids really organized around that. So on the day of the hearing, there was uh, 40 to 50 young people outside um, wow. the Supreme Court. They were all wearing <laughs> mortarboards. They had uh, banners saying, let us learn, or you know, with their university offers and their mm. A-levels on. David Lammy came to speak to them, mm. um, a bunch of other MPs all the QCs outside court kind of rallying them. Mm -hmm. Then the hearing began and they took off their T-shirts. They tried to go in. The security wouldn't let them in. Really? Yeah, it was really... Lammy wow. was uh, <laughs> calling it racism. Lady Hale had to send down her clerk to let them in. Wow. Um, it was really... <laughs> anyway, they sat throughout the whole hearing. The Supreme Court was overrun. They, they had a... A screen in the lobby area for the overflow of all the young people mm. um, 
and they sat there and listened to this quite dry legal argument mm. and then three weeks later when the judgment was going to be handed down I got a call from the Supreme Court saying we're handing down judgment next week you might want to tell the young people they don't need to come down um, Lady Hale's <laughs> just going to do a 10 minute judgment so I said this to the young people and they're like hell yeah we're going down <laughs> um, so they all turned up again to hear Lady Hale give the judgment to say that they were entitled to go to university and interestingly you know the footage the Daily Mail had sent someone down there to hmm. write a fairly negative story mm. on it but the, they even they published because the kids like celebrating mm. and they changed the national law you yeah. know and and, yeah. and the, the footage of them is amazing they're kind of crying and hugging each other you couldn't fail to be moved by mm. it um, but what was the most positive about that is it coalesce them as a movement mm. and they then m went on to not just sitting back and mm. thinking we've they went to negotiate with civil servants about how broad the rules would be um, really? expanded to they fundamentally Gosh, changed the consultation that uh, the biz when they issued the first guidance it was very narrow their mm. criteria they followed the home office rules and we went with the young people and they told them why that would not be fair and they changed the guidance and said we were very persuaded by the young people whose lives are impacted by this. Well, what more can you ask for? Yeah. It's, uh, it's just affecting that change. And and, and it's, it's, it's genuine sort of social reform. This is yeah. impacting, I say, not just those people who were affected then. Um, and going back to 2012, it's a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, but because but, that was only this year, I think, when they... Was it 2015. 2015, sorry. Judgment, yeah. When judgment came through. And... Uh, uh, well, sorry. This year, I was thinking uh, again about the um, the disclosure of youth criminal records. Yeah. That was only, I think, in January. Yeah. Is that right? Mm, yeah, um, yeah. And again, a similar sort of movement, I, I suspect. Yeah. And and will impact. Uh, there are thirteen thousand children a year that are given cautions, which were disclosed, which were just mandatorily disclosed, mm. who now will be protected by it. But the. The, the state you know the, the judgment has come down from the Supreme Court mm. now the work is how do you make sure the Home Office yeah. implement the changes and that's where a lot of the work comes so the litigation is actually just quite a narrow part of the the work the follow-up the embedding the changes uh, before we move on because um, there's, there's a natural place to move on there but I'm yeah. going to resist it for, for now I just want to talk a little bit about education yeah. um, uh, particularly in schools around the law um, yeah. I, I, I don't have any experience of that happening whilst I was at school no. and I know that was a while ago now is that something which is, that you've been involved in is it something that you're advocating for How? yeah I, t I think it's really important I think does it happen now I don't know no it's not a mandatory part of um, that whatever it is PCHSE mm. so you can include it in there but it's up to the discretion of the mm. schoolers but there are definitely schools who are there are amazing schools that are running activist campaigns um, for children and young people and bringing them in so one of the main things we hear from kids in schools is around the use of stop and search mm. that's the thing that troubles them the most mm. um, and where you can bring change uh, in that area and uh, you know obviously this climate justice stuff that mm. uh, kids have suddenly got involved in yeah. and striking yeah. and um, you know I don't know I was out on the at the demonstration a few weeks ago in Parliament and it was 
I mean, it was truly inspiring to see all of that. I came out into Parliament Square and, you know, I go to Westminster so much and it's so dry. And, and, and I came out to see the whole of Parliament Square filled with kids. Mm. Um, and they, they sat on the road in Parliament Square uh, and stopped all of the traffic. And you can see that, like that mm. nervousness mm. initially of doing it and then realizing the kind of safety in, in, in the numbers. numbers and yeah. just sitting down and taking action. And it was really, really inspiring. So uh, climate's obviously one thing which is, again, uh, affecting so many more people than just those involved in, yeah. in, in that particular protest. Yeah. But um, what do you think of the biggest or most significant threats or challenges that young people are facing right now you talked about stop and search yeah you kind of don't see it in the news so much anymore you you might generally think it's a thing that's of the past um but we hear about knife crime we yeah. hear about obviously there's all around social media um modern slavery in particular young people um used children use as spies yeah. all of these things are in the news yeah uh, so much more work to be done clearly but yeah. what what do you think are the most significant factors well, i think now? if you asked a kid if you ask young people that uh, and then one of the demands for in these climate justice actions is the fact that they don't have a voice in society. So one mm. of their demands is lowering the voting age to yep. 16 because I think they fundamentally feel, as everybody sees, this Brexit is dominating the narrative of, of all of Parliament and, and much of the country. And yet here are the people whose future th this country is going to be and they've got mm. no say in what that looks like. Mm. And I think if you ask young people to be civic and responsible yep. uh, you have to also listen to what they've got to say because in the end you know all of these older generation aren't going to be around to live the impact of what brexit will do absolutely absolutely and and uh, now's the time uh, there's, there's not <laughs> you won't wait around yeah um, and it's, it's so reassuring it's so good to hear about these things because you don't see them in the press as much as perhaps we should or, or, or would with other things um, which kind of brings me on now to where you are now yeah um, uh, you, you're still involved with Just for Kids yeah I'm still uh, doing some strategic litigation um, but you've launched a new consultancy yeah uh, with, with a, a mutual friend Fiona Borden who yeah. uh, I think is your director of communications and campaigns yeah um, so she's responsible for for you being here today. So thank oh, you to Fiona. But um, uh, tell me a little bit about that because this is again taking it to the next level yeah. once more. Yeah, and I think that is, that's really is what it is. So we um, after the Tajera case, mm. um, one of the foundations came to us and said we'd really like to do an evaluation of that work. Like why what was it about it that was successful and is there something that is unique to that particular case or is there something systemic in that yep. that we can um, look for other social change mm. litigation so we had this amazing evaluation done by a professor at UCL called Lisa Van Haller and um, she's a sociologist but she really studies strategic litigation across the world so uh, she studied disability rights litigation in yep. Canada she's looking at climate justice litigation across the world and how that's been effective and uh, what mm. her evaluation found of the of our intervention yep. in the Tajera case was that the litigation as I mentioned before was just one small strand mm. of that and what she said Just for Kids did extremely well was look at all the other elements that mm. are really important so the messaging for example yep. the comms and campaigns yeah. around that um, we came into the Tajera case knowing that there had been negative reporting mm. about a preceding case 
and how could we turn that into positive reporting in an, an environment this is pre-windrush so mm. a hostile environment mm. to migrants mm. um and very conscious that it's difficult to get a positive narrative around that mm. and this is where fiona was extraordinary because she really turned the story around and we were very proactive in seeking media attention of mm. the well the young people are awesome in themselves so they didn't take much encouragement but we were able to give them access to the media and for them to tell their stories and uh, you know, it was hard for them to do mm. that initially to get those kind of. Chris Ann did a first interview in the Guardian before the litigation, and uh, the comments underneath, even in the Guardian, was so awful to her. She was a 19-year-old girl, and they who she'd been a girl of her school. She'd mm. won a place on Obama's campaign mm. and a place at LSE to study law, and they're like, "Go home, go back to Jamaica. We don't want you here." I mean, it's it was really. <laughs> And the, anon the anonymity of hiding in those yeah. comments places, in these adult people, yeah. you know, kind of effectively abusing a child is mm. kind of bizarre. But the other elements that um, we covered was this idea of embedding the change once it, it came through. Um, really working with the young people in the run-up to the case. So we had weekly meetings, so they knew what the strategy of the litigation was. They were very actively involved, you know, to the point that they've now created their own, they're creating their own NGO, Chris Ann and, and Dami. You know, this wow. is now their life work. Yeah. So Lisa's evaluation <laughs> showed that we brought all of these different elements together mm around the litigation and that actually for um, social change to be really effective you need all of those elements not just the litigation on its own mm. and so what came out of that was this idea that this model could actually be employed in any area mm. of social change where you want to use the law so you don't yeah. just do the litigation you yeah. do do the, the full package yeah participation the messaging the embedding the change the coordinating a campaign alongside it and the follow-up yep and um, the follow-up which is so important the legacy activity so so how how is impact going uh, it's, it's only recently great. launched so, yeah uh, you, like, we you, haven't even launched it publicly so oh, it's really? been okay. soft launch but we've been running Top our secret. training material we've been running workshops um, yes. we went to Greece and worked with the refugee migrant <laughs> sector there um, to, we wanted to see if it had an international the framework had international mm. appeal as well did it work and, and it was also, it was amazing working with the, mm. the, I mean they're really struggling as you can imagine on the ground there with a million mm. Mm. Um, immigrants so this was child refugees um, and uh, yeah I've been working on various cases and campaigns and how are you uh, again curiosity more than anything else but how are you funding this so the workshops the, the we got seed funding to develop the okay. model which Good. has been great and the training materials and then we're asking people to buy the workshops so um, if you were an individual activist mm. on your own you might be able to get a trust or foundation to buy a workshop in if you're a bigger NGO mm. uh, you might be able to pay that of out course. of your budget so we are going to say to trust and foundations do you want to buy a bulk yeah. of workshops um that can then be brought in yeah well it's it's it, like, i know how much is going on and, and i know how much you've got to look forward to a lot of hard work by yeah. by look things but fun um but fun <laughs> and i've got to say uh, if people do get time to have a look at the website and there's, there's some videos on there yeah which really explain what you're doing and involve and show these young people who are just well 
I'd say I, I've seen just by talking to you this thread from Clive through you. Yeah. Uh, and now it's these yeah. oh, big numbers of people. And the who are being young inspired. people are, are, are going to be the trainers are training at Impact as well. So they're going to run the mobilization um, and. Uh, activation kind of workshops as well so we're carrying on working with them through impact as well really passing passing it on yeah uh fantastic look shonin um i feel like i can't keep you any longer because you've got so much more work to do um but thank you so much for joining us it's been fantastic and um i think we can all agree now that uh, more than just a lawyer i hope so (laughs) (laughs) thank you thank you the hearing As ever, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us again and why not give us a rating or subscribe? That way you'll get an alert every time we release a new episode. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.